Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers joining us for Legally Speaking. Michael, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Great to be here. And you have done some research on exactly what options are available to this government under the relative, or I should say the relevant statute. That's the Labor Relations Code. What's the story? Yeah, I, I mean, the reason things have clearly stalled in these negotiations seems now clear. Uh, the underlying problem and the reason why uh, you can't solve this problem simply by uh, offering uh, more than the what amounts to a 6% uh, wage increase over the length of the contract, although it could be unevenly distributed and more could be given to some people and you can move money from one pot to another. The reason why more than that can't just be provided and easily solve this disruption in the one school district is that the other public sector unions have negotiated a Me Too clause in their contracts. Me Too, not in the um, sexual impropriety sense, but Me Too in the sense that if any other public sector union gets an increase beyond that, everyone else gets it automatically. So the reason that uh, QP would have a particular interest in uh, trying to uh, have their members hold out here as long as possible is if they manage to extract more than that 6% amount uh, every other union member in the province is going to get that to the tune of something like $300 million per percent. So that's really what's going on here uh, and why the thing is run up on the rocks uh, and why there's no easy solution for the government to simply say, well, look, here's a uh, what would be in the public or the provincial sense a trifling amount of money to this particular uh, district because it would have billions of dollars in implications across the province. So that's just not likely to happen. Okay. So that's the underlying reason things have uh, stalled with the current state of affairs uh, being we've now had a uh, service withdrawal for uh, tomorrow it'll be two weeks uh, and you've had the uh, school district offer all the money they're permitted to offer and the union rejecting all the money they're permitted to offer that's the underlying conflict so how do we dislodge this current state of affairs there, oh. there would be a couple of approaches one approach would be a piece of legislation which would specifically end the strike and mandate that the uh, employees go back to work. That is not realistic with the NDP government uh, in BC. These are their supporters. Uh, and so uh, that approach is politically unlikely, even though it would be a legally available approach here. Uh -huh. Another more likely approach, and it seems to me what needs to be promptly engaged, is the uh, process available under the existing Labor Relations Code. Uh -huh. And in particular, at Section 72 of the Labor Relations Code, and that is a section which deals with um, what is sometimes called the designation of something as a uh, essential service. Um, and the language used in that section speaks of uh, investigations into whether something amounts to a threat to the health, safety, or welfare of the residents of British Columbia. And here's how that analysis would play out. Uh -huh. The investigation into uh, whether uh, the provision of elementary education would fall into that category, and really the relevant part there is welfare yes. of the re residents of British Columbia, that can be engaged either by one of the parties to the dispute, so the school board here could make a request to the Labor Relations Board to investigate whether or not what's going on in the Saanich School District amounts to a threat to the welfare of the residents of British Columbia. It could also be engaged um, uh, by the union if they wish to ask for it, but that seems unlikely. What happens after that occurs um, is that a report would be provided 
uh, to the uh, Minister of Labor, Harry Baines. Um, and the minister then, Harry Baines, the Minister of Labor, uh-huh. can either, after receiving such a report, or even without such a report, on his own initiative. Like, he could take this step uh, today, uh, and that may be sensible given how much time has passed. The minister can then make a recommendation or a decision based on either that investigative report by the Labor Relations Board or on the minister's own motion to determine uh, that, uh, in this case, the welfare of the residents of British Columbia are threatened by the continued uh, disruption and the continued strike. At that point, um, the the, uh, Labor Relations Board would be engaged and the Labor Relations Board would then have to make a determination to determine what part of those services constitute uh, necessary or essential uh, to prevent the language's uh, immediate and serious danger to the list of things, health, safety, or welfare of the residents of British Columbia. So it requires a decision by the minister, that's the Minister of Labor, Harry Baines, Yes. and then it requires a determination uh, by the Labor Relations Board. And uh, helpfully, uh, there are a series of previous decisions by the Labor Relations Board uh, that deal with the issue of what is meant by welfare of the re- welfare of the residents of British Columbia and what is meant by the language um, immediate and serious danger to said welfare of the residents of British Columbia. And those decisions have dealt with expressly what about elementary school education. So we have some we insight have into this. We Good. have some guidance. Good. Uh, and in particular, in September uh, of 2011, uh, there was a decision of the Labor Relations Board, and this was a decision that uh, was followed from some service uh, withdrawal strikes by teachers uh, during the um, preceding years. Uh, and uh, at that point, um, the uh, uh, Labor Relations Board issued this uh, decision uh, looking at the history of that language uh, in the Labor Relations Code to interpret what is meant by um, essential to prevent the immediate and serious danger to the health, safety, or welfare of the residents of British Columbia in the context of a school strike. Uh, And after analyzing uh, the history of that, how that language worked, the Hansard history, and the history in other provinces, uh, the overarching conclusion is this. that while in some provinces and some jurisdictions, public service employees have an unfettered right to strike, and while in other jurisdictions, public service employees have no right to strike whatsoever, Hmm. in British Columbia, we have something in the middle, uh, and the language uses a controlled strike model. And what that means is that it's not just uh, a free-for-all, right? Uh, There are some limits uh, on how these things uh, can uh, proceed. And with respect to elementary education, the interesting thing is this. Back at that time, back uh, when this case was argued in 2011, both the province and the teachers' union took the position that a teacher is a teacher and it's all or nothing. Either all of them are essential or none of them are essential. In all circumstances, we need just a blanket decision. Uh, And the decision at that point from the Labor Relations Board was a much more much more nuanced decision, and it amounted to this. It said, look, different types of service withdrawals affect different students in a different way. And so the example given was 
Uh, a service withdrawal could affect grade 12 students in June in a very different way than it might affect kindergarten students in September. I see. In that. one All case, right. the student's going to miss out on their entire year, not get to go to university. It's going to be a devastating impact. For the kindergarten student in September, well, early childhood education is very important. Probably if they start in October, little long-term harm is going to come. I right? see. Uh, now, with that background, saying that, look, there would have to be a careful analysis of which part and how something is going to meet that threshold of being an immediate and serious danger to the welfare of the residents of British Columbia, uh, there were some guidelines uh, set out here that uh, the board may wish to consider in the future in this previous decision. Part of that is this, and this is why the current length of the strike is important. The board at that point said, I conclude that teachers can withdraw from the classroom for at least two weeks without any service being designated as essential. But then at that point, uh, the, they go on to, uh, the board goes on to analyze uh, how that uh, would be, how that language would be engaged beyond that point in time. And given that we're now at the two-week mark, it seems to me that what needs to occur is there needs to be a, uh, either uh, Minister Baines needs to take action on his own uh, to send this matter to the Labor Relations Board in order to make this nuanced determination of uh, what is essential and how should that be ordered back? Uh, and because we have a the political reality of the NDP being essentially a party whose supporters are the people who are on strike. Well, they are the political arm of the labor, of <laughs> the labor right. movement. They always have been. They don't hide that. So. so what may be necessary to move this along and produce a little bit of impetus for uh, Mr. Baines to take action and refer this generally to the board for the uh, determination uh, it would be, in my mind, sensible for one of the parties, in this case the school board, uh, to request of the uh, Labor Relations Board that they conduct an investigation to determine whether the current service withdrawal amounts to a threat to the welfare of the residents of British Columbia and then produce a report to the minister so that the minister could then have that in hand. That might be some political cover and impetus for the minister to get moving, uh, and make the determination to refer it back to the board to make the sort of nuanced decision that uh, would be uh, suggested by the case that I've referenced. So there's a clear okay. existing law legal framework uh, to get this uh, uh, disruption ended in a way that there isn't continued harm to the welfare of the residents of British Columbia, something which has previously been determined is the case at least for a longer-term withdrawal of service uh, for elementary school education. I should say this. Hmm. the uh, Mr. Baines, in making that decision, because he will be required to make the decision, as I've said, either now or after getting some report, assuming that uh, the school board wishes to engage the uh, Labor Relations Board, Mr. Baines will, of course, need to be cognizant of his mandate letter. Uh, when he was appointed, he was sent a letter by the Premier setting out what his duties were. The first commitment in the letter is this. Our first commitment is to make life more affordable. Too many families are left behind for too long by the previous government. They are counting on you to do your part to make their lives easier. That seems pretty relevant. The second part is even more clear. Our second commitment is to deliver the services that people count on. Together, we can ensure that children get access to the quality public education they need to succeed. That seems pretty clear, and it would seem to me uh, Mr. Beans ought to 
reference his mandate letter and consider his authority under Section uh, 72 of the Labor Relations Code uh, and get this matter referred to the board so it can make a clear determination as to uh, how this is to come to an end because but for that, given the larger factors at play, uh, there appears to be no possibility of the matter moving forward because any further advance by the union beyond what was offered and rejected to them would cost the province hundreds of millions of dollars. That seems almost inconceivable. And so we're at a point uh, now with an almost two-week service withdrawal. Something clearly needs to occur. If the minister won't get going on his own, I would suggest the school board uh, ought to review Section 72 of the uh, Labor Relations Code, and perhaps that will light a fire under the minister to get moving and make his decision. I've got a big smile on my face, Michael. You are very good at what you do. I hadn't thought of reviewing the mandate letter, but indeed it says that our second commitment is to deliver the services people count on. There's no language here saying in no particular order. Indeed, the first service that is mentioned here with the pride of place of being the first service mentioned is quality public education, specifically access to that. It'll be hard for them to argue that this mandate is being followed if indeed the children are denied that access. So I'm interested to see what happens next. Let's take a quick break. Legally Speaking continues with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers right after this. See the pros hit the ice in Vancouver live with CFAX 1070. All hockey season. Go to CFAX1070.com to be entered to win. You could score a $50 gift card to Glenwood Meats. Plus, you'll be qualified to win our hockey home and away grand prize. Two tickets to a game at Rogers Arena. Overnight accommodation at the Rosedale and Robson Suite Hotel. And round trip travel on BC Ferries. Full details at CFAX1070.com. Carpe diem, Latin for seize the road, embodies what the Alfa Romeo Q4 all-wheel drive system stands for. When you get behind the wheel of the Stelvio SUV or Julia Sports sedan, every roadway from racetracks to snow tracks should be approached with an unwavering confidence that only a century of racing heritage provides. Visit alfaromeo.ca to book a test drive. Did you know that the new Broadway SkyTrain line is being built with the Community Benefits Agreement? This means the highest safety standards, a commitment to environmental protection, and our most skilled workers training the next generation of trades. And best of all, it's local workers who are first in line for the jobs. Those are just some of the reasons why Community Benefits Agreements are supported by the Community Building Standard. Find out more at buildingitright.ca. Clouds, waterfalls, streams, and sprinkling rain. Isn't water wonderful? Unless it's in your RV. Then you're... Ah, uh, what the... I can't... Less than happy. Get your RV winterized at Tom's RV Service. With their premium low-odor winterizing system, your RV will be well protected from freezing, so you don't even have to think about water. Till summer, do it now. Do it better at Tom's RV Service, just off Jacqueline in Langford. It's Sleep Country's 25th birthday, but right now you get the gift. As a thank you for 25 amazing years, you'll get a free $25 birthday promo card at any Sleep Country store. It's good for anything, including mattresses, headboards, and bedding, like pillows, duvets, sheets, and more, with no minimum to spend. It's our gift to you, so get yours before November 12th. It all ends Tuesday. Sleep Country, all for sleep. One card per person per transaction. Card expires November 12th, 2019. Cannot be combined with gift card purchases. Use in-store or online. See in-store for details. 
How Bell makes staying connected better. Hey, check out my new phone. Mm. The screen is stunning. It takes incredible pictures and the battery lasts forever. It's like the high-performance sports car of phones. Nice. What network did you put it on? Does it really matter? Of course it matters. Look, wouldn't you want to drive your high-performance sports car on a smooth, ultra-fast highway? Well, when you put it that way. Get the most out of your smartphone on Bell, Canada's best network. Visit a Bell store or bell.ca slash network for details. Bell, staying connected just got better. You think you know someone. Grammy winners, Emmy winners, Hall of Fame players, and comedians. But how well do you know their voice? Meghan Markle, Lady Gaga, Lindsay Lohan. Wednesday on CTV. You're all invited to play along. The international hit that has celebs singing in the most outrageous costumes. Look at I'm so freaking confused right now. They'll keep you guessing week after week. Man, this is tough. Who are you? The Masked Singer, television's musical sensation. All new, Wednesday at 8, only on CTV. Parked on the Pat Bay? We'll get you back on track. If it's happening, it's here. CFAX 1070. This is Adam Sterling on CFAX 1070. Legally Speaking continues with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Before we move on to the next topic, Michael, you very helpfully articulated the options that this government has in terms of engaging the Labor Relations uh, Board about this, either the minister with the benefit of a report or a request from the school district or on his own initiative. You also briefly mentioned off the top, while not politically expedient, there is the legal option of the government simply passing legislation ending the strike yeah and they could do that without any of that uh, any of the considerations or legal test or definition of what are essential services the government would be uh, free to do that uh, it just seems to me that with the current government it would be virtually inconceivable uh, that the uh, NDP would take that uh, step it just being so inconsistent with their political supporters to do that so it does seem to me that the existing uh, legal regime, which is a nuanced and balanced one, as I mentioned, sort of deals with the uh, British Columbia reality of not being a place where public service strikes are prohibited, but also not being a place where public sector strikes are uh, unlimited. We have this controlled strike model uh, that does seem like a uh, balanced and nuanced and appropriate approach. Um, and if I were giving advice to Mr. Baines, I suppose I am by <laughs> indirectly, it would be have a look at your mandate letter. Uh, you're mandated to ensure things including child get children get access to quality public uh, education. Have a look at Section 72 of your Act uh, and send this matter to the Labor Relations Board so that the Labor Relations Board can make an appropriate and nuanced uh, decision under the existing legislation uh, and ensure that uh, we don't have uh, ongoing um, serious harm. Uh, to children uh, who are uh, missing out on their uh, right to that quality public education, which your government has indicated is one of its very top priorities. All right. Thank you very much for that analysis, Michael. We greatly appreciate it. I want to move on and ask a question about limitation periods for criminal charges. Many of us have heard the term statute of limitations. What's the story when it comes to criminal offenses here in B.C.? And I must say, every time that uh, gets raised also causes me to think of Seinfeld and the statue of limitations. But <laughs> no, it's not a statue. There's no statue anywhere that limits it. Uh, but this is a question I get asked, I think, frequently. So I think it's something worth addressing. And there have been some recent changes to it. So I think uh, people should know about it. All right. People will often ask some very version of the question, how long do the police have to investigate me, right? Isn't there some limitation period? Where's that statue? Um, and... Uh, 
in most cases, uh, there is no uh, time limit on the police conducting uh, an investigation or being charged. Uh, in Canada, we have uh, uh, two categories of criminal charges. Criminal charges that proceed what are called by indictment. That's the more serious way things can proceed. That would be things like uh, murder, kidnapping, things of this sort. And we have a few offenses which are what are called straight summary conviction offenses. Those are things like public nudity. Almost everything between murder and public nudity would be what are called hybrid offenses, meaning the Crown could choose. Do you want to go by indictment? Do you want to go summarily? Where the Crown wants to go summarily, there is a limitation period in terms of time. It used to be, until very recently, six months. So that was the uh, practical time limit. However, the Crown can, in most cases, with the exception of some minor offenses like the aforementioned public nudity, go by indictment, at which point there's no time limit at all. Um, now, where the Crown chooses to go by indictment and enjoy the benefit of no time limit uh, and potentially greater penalties, uh, there are, however, some additional procedural protections for people. Somebody could, for example, elect to have a trial by judge and jury, or in many cases, a preliminary inquiry. Uh, and so, while the Crown in most cases, for most offenses, could choose to proceed by indictment, meaning there'd be no time limit on the police investigation or charging somebody, there can be a practical limit in the sense that, um, well, beyond a year, you could charge somebody by indictment with, let's say, shoplifting, theft under. You probably don't want to do that because you would engage things potentially like a trial by judge and jury over the you know, relatively minor offense, which is going to consume a potentially fair amount of public resources pursuing something of modest significance. Uh, and so in many cases, there will be a practical limit, uh, but there is, in most cases, no legal impediment to the Crown proceeding at any time, and therefore the police can take all the time they want to investigate you. Once you are charged, however, there are some limits on how long they have to get you to trial. In most cases, criminal cases in provincial court, it's 18 months. But it could be 30 months in cases that are in Supreme Court where there's a preliminary inquiry. So there are some time limits either. So there are some time limits once you're charged. But in most cases, there's no uh, legal prohibition on the Crown proceeding at any time. You know, you don't get out of, uh, there's no get out of jail free card after uh, five years for murdering your neighbor. If they come up with evidence that you've done it five years down the road, well, you'll be charged. You've helped us understand the two-part test for bringing charges. One, is there a substantial likelihood of conviction? Two, would the bringing of charges be in the public interest? Does that test differentiate between indictable or summary offenses or hybrid offenses? The test would be the same for both of those, although I suppose the public interest component of the test might come into play in a different way if there was a very long delay for a very minor yeah. offense. You know, okay. if somebody said, look, I've come to you with compelling evidence that you know, Adam stole this chocolate bar three years ago. Look, it's on video. It's very clear he took it. Uh, you know, could the Crown come up, proceed by indictment and uh, proceed with a charge? Sure. But I suppose after some time goes by, you might conclude, well, there's really no public interest in doing that. It's minor. It was a really long time ago. Nothing else has happened since. And to engage the process at this point and in that way uh, could result in great public expense for a little practical good. Interesting. Our third story, credit union overdraft fees and rates of interest which may violate the criminal code. How does that work? Yeah, there may be a lot of people uh, looking forward to a refund uh, if they're a credit union member, and here's why. Uh, the criminal code in section 347 
prohibits criminal rates of interest. A criminal rate of interest would be an interest rate in excess of 60% per year. Okay. You can't have some loan shark operation where, you know, I suppose some of the credit cards might get close to that, but you can't just go and charge somebody 400% interest uh, and uh, effectively have them indebted forever. We have a limit. Uh, and in uh, BC, there have been a few class actions that have started and been certified, including one which had a further decision um, just recently. This particular one involved a whole series of credit unions all across the province. And the history of it is that credit unions were charging people overdraft fees uh, when they wound up you know, writing a check for more than what was in their account. Mm. And in some cases, because the amount of overdraft might have been tiny and might have been repaid promptly, the effect of it would be that the effective rate of interest obtained by the credit union for effectively extending somebody a loan for a few days for a few hundred dollars would be a flat fee of like $5 or in some cases $15. What it meant was that the credit unions were effectively getting a rate of interest way beyond the upper limit, which is 60%. Uh, and so a class action got certified in that regard, uh, and uh, it involved a whole series of credit unions in a time period between November 20th, 1997 and February 1st, 2003. And this has been litigated ever since, basically. Uh, you know, credit unions fighting about, uh, you know, what about limitation periods and what about, uh, you know, shouldn't we keep some of the money? Do we have to give all the money back? And issues like, was that interest or was that something else because that's an interesting thing in any case the decision which just came out concluded no that is interest the you know five dollars you took from somebody to give them a um uh, overdraft uh, amount for a few days that is interest that is criminal you can't keep that uh but the uh, judge in this recent decision concluded uh that they should be permitted to keep some of the money uh because a lower rate of interest would have been uh, permissible. It's just that they, uh, because there was this flat fee, in many cases for a small amount of money for a short period of time, they wound up getting uh, much more than what is criminally permitted. And so the decision in this case, which just came out on November the 4th, was to find that these whole series of credit unions, for the time period in issue, are going to be permitted to keep half of the uh, money they collected in these overdraft fees, and the other half, being that it was collected unlawfully and in contradiction of the criminal code, is going to have to be given back to all the people that were affected. And so uh, if you're a member of one of these various credit unions, and there's a long list of them here, um, once this case now resolves, hopefully soon, um, there will be some process uh, engaged whereby you're going to get some of your overdraft fees back because they were collected in contravention of the criminal code. Michael Mulligan, pleasure as always. Thank you for your knowledge and insight. Thank you. Take care. Michael Mulligan, every week here on CFAX 1070, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. It is Legally Speaking. The news is next.